0: Welcome to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. If you haven't checked them out, do so. Some great, great, great shows over there. I am here with a special episode, a full hour-long interview with Cynthia Kaufman, the author of a new book, Consumerism, Sustainability, and Happiness, How to Build a World Where Everyone Has Enough. You may remember our conversation from, about a year ago, where we chatted about her previous book, The Sea is Rising and So Are We. So excited to have you back. And yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me again. So by way of introduction, what question did you sort of set out to answer when you wrote this book? You know, like I find that authors often sort of are thinking about something and then they're like, "Ah, I got it. Then we lose you for a research hole for a while. So what did you set out to sort of answer for yourself?
1: Yeah. So and this book really did start with a question. The question was, is it possible to build a sustainable world given how driven so many people are by consumerism? yeah that I mean, that's really the question. I see around me people who are always wanting more, bigger houses, bigger cars, that sort of thing. Given that people are driven that way, is it possible to have a sustainable world, a world where everyone has enough?
0: I find that question so interesting, partially just because it feels right now, I can imagine like the answer is no, right? Like as the the history of humanity, really, has been of some nature of people finding ways to consume more and more and more. At least that's sort of the story we're being told. And perhaps I'd be interested to know if that was something that you found to be true or not in your research. But before we get there, I'd like to start with this concept of enough, because it to me is the crux of both this conversation and seemingly also of your book. And so
1: how do you think about this idea of enough? Yeah. Okay. So, and I have to say that my original title I wanted for the book was Enough, like just enough, no subtitle, but but my publisher didn't want that. So I just wanted to say that. So Enough is really the core of the book. And so the first chapter kind of lays out the idea of like, what would enough mean? And so it, it's got three sections, uh, happiness, sustainability, and poverty. So the idea is, so you, so I start with the idea that like, Look, just in terms of how much stuff is created in the world, there is there is always enough food, for example, for everybody, right? And so so Amartya Sen has done really incredible work on that to sort of show that famines are always caused by politics. So if you just start with like the basics like there's enough food for everybody, even in the United States and I'm presuming this is also true in Canada, there are enough homes for everybody, right? There's enough stuff in this world for everybody. And if you look at the sort of the sustainability piece as we move away from fossil fuels and towards green energy, there the 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 environmental. So I did a deep dive as I was doing research for this book. Somebody said to me, you know, there's not enough. In fact, it was one of the reviewers of the book said, there's really not enough in this world in terms of sustainability for, for we need to have a lower population. So I really looked into that question. And I feel like from the things that I read, I feel quite clear that there is enough in this world for everybody to live comfortably. In other words, not just to be out of poverty, but also to have heating when it's cold and you know cooling when it's hot for all of us. I really do believe that, and I have a bunch of evidence in the book for that. That that the idea is that as that that there is a there is enough for everybody to live. Comfortable lives at the population we're likely to level off at, which is probably around ten billion. That we're we're right that that I mean, there's all, always changes in that, but we're we're headed towards leveling leveling off at a world population end of next century or beginning of next century of around ten billion. There is enough room to grow food. There is enough room for solar panels. There is enough you know minerals to have, for batteries. There is actually enough. Mark Jacobson is a is an engineer who's done a ton of work on this. And if you look at his work, he kind of maps out, and he has a, a great book called No Miracles Needed, where he shows that there is enough stuff if we stop being wasteful to have enough for everybody. Right. And then what I love about
0: this idea of enough is it sort of goes both ways, right? There's enough in terms of ensuring that people have enough, but also enough of how do you
1: convince people that they have enough right and so that's right so thank you so much like that so that's the other side of the argument has to do with with happiness right and there's a whole social scientific literature on the concept of happiness where people have shown that so, like let's take a country like the United States that has tremendous levels of inequality, like ridiculously like historical levels of inequality. And then let's take a country like Costa Rica that has, is much more egalitarian. The level the average level of happiness in those two societies is roughly the same. So when you when you and in the United States, in the last 20, 30 years, the, the, the size of our homes has doubled the average size of the home in the United States has doubled without the level of happiness going up. So then part of the problem of like, how do you get to a world of enough is how do you convince people that their thousand, foot square square foot home is actually enough? Well, it's not enough if you live in a society that says your social status requires your house to be bigger than your neighbor's house. Right? So, so one of the things I found in looking into this was that that inequality is tremendously corrosive to a sense, people's sense of happiness and having enough. And one of the things that the literature finds, which I found totally fascinating as I dug into this, that they, people did a study in Europe that showed that levels of co- of inequality are incredibly corrosive to people's sense of happiness. Of course, more for people at the bottom, but even for people at the top. So if you live in an egalitarian in society, no matter how much you have, you're going to have status anxiety because somebody else has a yacht that's bigger than yours.
0: Yeah. And that's something that I think is super key to, I think, understanding and changing the culture so that we can accept that we have enough, but is also so hard to do. You know, like uh, there's these studies also, and maybe you've right came across about like how, like the one I read a couple years ago, which I'd be interested to know if you came across or if, if there's updated st- numbers was that like at some point you will of one's own personal income, it it stops being correlated with happiness, you yeah, to a point at like seventy thousand dollars and like that. And after that, your income is no longer correlated. Before that, it's very clearly correlated in that you need some money to live and you're not always worried about X, Y, Z. But at some point, that breaks down and suddenly the question in what brings you happiness is something else entirely. Yeah,
1: no, that's absolutely true. And they said actually, on a global scale, that number is ten thousand dollars, right? But then, sort of in, in in wealthy in in wealthy kind of countries, it's around seventy thousand. So yeah, no, absolutely. There there's more stuff does not bring you more happiness. Surprise, surprise, right? And then, but then also in that first chapter, I do talk about the problem of poverty, and so you just alluded to that. The idea is that there are some basic things that everybody needs, right? You need you for happiness. So you need enough food, you need housing, you need, you need a sense that you'll do fine in the future. So sort of pensions and things like that. So once you kind of figure out what are those things that everybody needs to have their basic needs met, beyond that, happiness comes from other things, right? And we all know that. We all know that money doesn't make you happy. But if you live in a society like the United States or Canada, where your your success is precarious and the United States much more than Canada, but still so, you know, a precarious society where your ability to live as an elder person is dependent upon a pension that you may not have, right? Or sort of, you know, our, our social security is nowhere near enough. To kind of live uncomfortably all those things create tremendous a- anxiety in life so one of the most important things in getting to a world of enough is having enough kind of public goods that so you know if you live in a society where there's great public transportation you don't need a car everybody can get around right if you live in a society that has good public health care which y'all have and we don't then you don't need a job to be able to have health care. If you have good systems of, of elder care, you don't need right. So so the idea, one of the ideas in the book is to get to a world of enough, you need very robust social goods. Right. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Because I think one big part of accepting you have enough is the belief that you will be safe if XYZ happens. And, you know, I mean, the states is a good example of it where it feels like, There are so many things that could happen to you that almost any amount of money or until you get to really uber amounts of wealth could bankrupt you. You know, you lose your job, a hit by a car, bam, or you know, you you get a you get a cancer or something that requires expensive treatments. And you can imagine how that really requires you to build up such a nest egg and such a protection racket that like even people that we would think of as uber wealthy don't actually have the safety net to feel like they have enough because there are these specific things that could go wrong that actually make them closer to being bankrupt, you know, than Elon Musk or something,
1: yeah, no, I think that's right. And so it's it's sort of weird that that like that there there's that one side of like what are the social goods that you need to have so you don't have that sort of that anxiety for your future? And that's that's really real, and that's really serious and then it's a whole different bucket of things the things that make you feel like you have enough because of status anxiety right those are those are those are two kind of separate sets of problems for sure and so
0: maybe we can use that as a, a segue into your sort of third chapter which is around building one's life around enough how it, i'd be curious is that more about how we do that now in terms of trying to create our, our lives that we always will have enough? Or is that more of like a ways we could actually limit our material growth in a way personally?
1: Right. So so one of the things, right. So, so I'm I, I really appreciating the, the series of questions because it's like, there's that first piece, which is just like, do you have enough to be okay? And then that third chapter is like, for those of us, and I can t- count myself in that, who do have enough, what keeps you then from getting into that status treadmill, right? Because again, that, like it, that's the second problem. And I really feel like it's, I see it around me all the time with middle-class people who, and again, like I'll give you an example of some neighbors of mine. I lived until very recently in, in a lovely neighborhood in California near the beach, where most of the houses were quite small, right? Like, you know, and a thousand square feet, which, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, two small bed, three small bedrooms, two small bedrooms, a little living room, no room for a dining room. That's okay. Right. But like, just a charming little cottage of a house. My neighbors, one after the other, were flattening these cottages and putting up bigger homes. Right. So like 3,000, 5,000 square foot homes. And I think, wow, and you just disrupted your family life for an entire year to take this cute little cottage and turn it into a mansion. And why did you do that? And then the people then needed extra jobs, right. To have extra income, to be able to afford that. So for me, where I look as a person who's very comfortable with a little cottage of a house, why are they doing that? Right. And that's that psychology part. And I think, and so, so some of them, again, the sort of psychology part for is that people all around me are making choices that seem like they're not helpful for their happiness. Why are they doing that? And I have to say they're doing that, I think because of status, because there's something about having a, a little cottage of a house that makes you feel not successful. Right. And so that's that whole chapter is what is that psychology? And I think, you know, again, you have to say, what are the corporate influences that make people always feel like they have enough or they don't have enough, right? Sort of like the, 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 you know, obvious, right? Like the, the, the advertising, the culture of consumerism. And so what, what you have to do to escape from that actually is to almost like live in a counterculture in some ways. And there's a guy, Adele Daoud, who's an economist who's done work on this, where he actually did research among people who said like, yeah, I'm good. I have enough. Like, what does it take to have that feeling? And I feel like I, in my own personal life, strive for that. Like, I'm good. I don't need more money. I ha- I, I'm i one of the lucky ones, right? I actually, because I'm in a unionized position, I have a pension, right? I have health care, So I have those things in that kind of First bucket of needs. So I am one of those lucky ones. But then if you are one of those lucky ones, what makes you not feel like you're one of the lucky ones? And I think the answer is the community of people around you. So some of it really is about creating a culture of sufficiency of like, no, I don't need to go to Tahiti and burn up fossil fuels to tell people that I went to Tahiti so I feel like, like a successful person, right? So some of it's really about shifting social and cultural norms to get to a place where you feel a sense of sufficiency. For sure, yeah.
0: I want to get into the economics piece after the music break, but before we do, I want to talk about community. Because to me, that is... The thing I come back to again and again and again in terms of when I ask myself the question, how do I imagine people living the quote unquote good life or a good life or a happy life that is not so consumptive? The answer overwhelmingly seems to be community. The answer is in terms of. Third spaces, places for people to gather, public spaces. I was recently introduced to the term public luxuries, which I loved. You know, like the ability to sort of like have the, you know, you don't all need little plots of your own backyards that need to be manicured all the time. If you could just have beautiful parks that you can go to, right? Like if we can create public luxuries and places to build community, we can find those moments of happiness and those experiences outside of the consumptive nature. Because what's fascinating a little bit is, as you said, we have bigger and bigger homes and fewer and fewer people living in them, right? Like we are yeah. in a loneliness epidemic. People have talked about this yeah. for years. And that is fascinating because like theoretically you would imagine why have a giant home if not to host in it, you right. know? And yet that seems to be, even that culture seems to be dying, right? We don't seem to be having even the culture of, of having people over as often. And so- right. We are somehow simultaneously in a culture that is isolating us, as well as pushing us towards consumption. And I think those two things are are linked. Absolutely
1: right. And you know, John Kenneth Galbraith talked about public squalor, private opulence. Right, this idea that sort of like the sort of neoliberal paradigm—that's word was before before he wrote that. But anyway, you know, the idea of the sort of the, the extreme capitalism where everybody has their own private goods and there are no good public goods and absolutely that the, the idea of public luxury i was recently in chicago i, w- I went on a, a nationwide train trip which was lovely and you know just took the train around and i spent some time in chicago and i happened to be there when they had the blues festival so in the middle of chicago there's this fantastic giant park and everybody comes to the the, the festival for free the festival's paid for by the city and by you know grants and stuff like that and everybody's there having a great time so it's community, and it's also public goods. So the idea of that—that that there are wonderful, fabulous things happening that bring us together and give us joy that we don't have to pay for, as in terms of our own private economy.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And then that brings us happiness.
0: Like right. people like being around each other. I, I, it seems that we've lost this understanding of th- that we are social creatures, right. and that if we can find places and ways to do that. We don't have to keep consuming. You don't have to go to Tahiti to be with your friends. Your friends can just hang out with you. And yet so often I feel like even that sort of idea of making space and time to be just yourself and not a consumer or a part of the system is also only done on vacation. Right. Like we almost can yeah. compartmentalize that. And so the only way you can feel like you can relax is if you're not in your house or not in your neighborhood. So you end up flying outside of your of your area just to begin to feel like you can be a different person than the person you are in that sort of
1: treadmill. Yeah, no, that's right. And so that there's this way that then sort of consumerism becomes like I I I I need some happiness. So what do I buy? Right. As opposed to like I need some happiness, so what are the fun things I can do with people in community, right? Having friends over for dinner, like, you know, parties, concerts, music, right? You think of all the kind of things that give us joy in life, they're all sort of increasingly being commodified, as opposed to this sort of idea of decommodifying kind of pleasure and joy with, with community happiness time. You know, and part of that, I think about the people who are super time crunched. It's like, I'm working really hard in my job. I have two weeks off or maybe a week off. So what's the way I can get the maximum joy hit in that little bit of time? So that then part of decommodifying joy is the idea of people having enough time that they can let's cook food together, let's make music together, let's make art together, let's just, you know, sit around and just talk with each other, that, that there's all these forms that if you decommodify joy, there's lots of things we can do that don't have the same exclusive nature in terms of who gets to have those joys, but then also that don't have the same environmental impact as kind of highly commodified forms of joy.
0: For sure. And so we're going to talk about why our system commodifies everything in just a brief second. But we will be back in just a minute. Enjoy this music break. And we'll be right back.
1: The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big
0: Shiny Takes, and North Untapped.
1: Thank you so much for listening.
0: And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or well, perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. If you were just joining us, we are here with a special episode with Cynthia Kaufman, the author of Consumerism, Sustainability, and Happiness, How to Build a World Where Everyone Has Enough. We've just finished talking a little bit about enough, and now we are into some of the heavier economics pieces of this because we, I think, indisputably have designed this world, or at least someone has designed this world, mm-hmm. to commodify everything and to impact, as you've actually you know highlighted a few times already, our understanding of enough. So to start, how do you see our economic system having impacted sort of this understanding
1: of what is enough? Okay. So, you know, I would say that the 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 entry point into that is to think about capitalism and capitalism is always racial capitalism, right? The idea that for the last five hundred years, people have been exploited for the profit of the few. And so the idea is that we live in a society now where, you know, I'm You, many, many people in this world do not have enough because the capitalist system is not giving them enough. I think about California where, where I live, where in Los Angeles, they now say there are 40,000 people living on the street in Los Angeles, one of the wealthiest, you know, places in the world. And that's because, and the reason people have nowhere near enough, they don't have a place to live is not because we don't have enough homes in this state. California has more homes more empty homes than homeless people right but you get a home based on your ability to pay for a home so that's you know i mean i just think that there's so much in this world that just comes basically down to capitalism and the profit motive and that there are people who have an incentive in having people wanting more 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 you know and and resources are allocated on the basis of need they're basis they're allocated on the basis of effective demand which is demand backed by money
0: yeah and the other thing that i can't sort of stop harping on so i'm gonna sort of tee you up for this one for a second because i think it's really important to understand this larger context is that we also have had a shift in capitalism over the last 70 80 years with the introduction of you know perceived obsolescence and planned obsolescence And these ideas where we've created our goods and services that are meant to fail. You know, like I remember hearing about this story. This is now, maybe this actually would be before that. So maybe it goes back longer and maybe that indicates my particular bias. But I remember hearing a story about light bulb manufacturers who at one point came together because they realized they had made light bulbs that were too good. And their light bulbs were lasting too long. And that, so no one was buying more light bulbs and that was mm-hmm. having it hard for them to like keep up their factories because they were just not being sold. And so I was sort of like, huh, we are designing things to constantly break. So you can't ever have enough in some ways because if you stop buying stuff, the stuff you own will not last. And we've designed it that way. And we've designed increasingly each sector has quicker and quicker obsolescence timelines. And it, we are on this sort of real waste scale. But yeah, I'm sort of like that is obviously always a part of capitalism because I guess in some ways it's always been the goal to make more money. And so like any way you can find it. But it does strike me as like something new in the shorter period of time where like the idea of good has moved from sort of quality workmanship to newness in a way that is overwhelming, I'd say now. Yeah. In a way that was not the case, say, 50 years ago or actually now maybe a hundred years ago. I keep, you know, probably pre-war. You you keep moving
1: the goalposts on that that timeline thing. No, I mean, I really appreciate the question and the way you're thinking about that. And remember that whole light bulb story you're telling, I think was early 20th century. Right. So that's right. So, so that has So, you know, if you just think about like the basic premise in capitalism is we need to keep figuring out ways to make profit. That's the fundamental idea. And, that consumerism for you know over the course of the 20th century became an increasingly large kind of aspect of capitalism the idea of people just and then and then and then it, it's it's in it's sort of accelerated that that idea of of always oh, needing new stuff and planned obsolescence you know i think about the two kitchen things i'm going to give you for that one or household things you know one of them is like the washing machine right like that's a pretty simple device and it really uh, you could imagine creating washing machines that lasted, I don't know, even like a 100 years, certainly 50 years, you know. And I have been amazed that the average length of a life of a washing machine in the United States is roughly 10 years. Like, that's crazy, right? And when you think about, so there's two sides of this. There's There's the sort of consumerism part of it people driven to get more and then there's the sort of the the we want you to have to buy another thing so that that thing is going to break and so i think the you know the europeans are doing better on this about sort of pushing pushing companies to take back their garbage and so that they're not as incentivized to produce for the garbage can i think is really important also the right to repair the idea of if something breaks let's Let's have things, let's force manufacturers to create things in ways that people can then fix them. So there's a bunch of stuff in kind of all of that, the sort of planned obsolescence, forcing the circular economy, forcing forcing manufacturers to kind of take back the junk so that then it gets reused. I think of cell phones as a really great example there, too, where those rare earth metals that are mined with so much human tragedy, right, that then get thrown into the garbage can as opposed to re, reused. There's a bunch of stuff in in, in in all of that that's really, really crucial that we fight for, right to repair A circular economy, those kinds of things. How long is this machine going to last? No, I'm going to buy one that's going to last 20 years as opposed to 10. But then there's the consumerism part, which is my kitchen has gone out of style. And so I need to disrupt my life for three or four months while they rebuild my kitchen so that I can have stylish countertops. There's just something extraordinary about that. And so I think about the, 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 the need for new, right. And so that's like the fact that I need a new kitchen and I don't, by the way, like I'm so opposed to this, but like, because my kitchen has gone out of style, I just think is extraordinary. And that's, that's the psychological part, right? That's the part that I somehow feel inadequate as a human being. If you walk into my kitchen and my kitchen looks like it's 20 years old, right. That, that, that's just. That's the psychological piece, but you wanted to to pull us back to the economic part, which yeah, planned obsolescence, profit, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, but that that psychological piece is so important too, right? Like that
0: is the that's the perceived obsolescence part. That's the part where you're being told time and time again that you know if you don't have the newest thing or or whatever, it just isn't good enough anymore. You know, even despite the fact that everyone seems to accept that fashion the is cyclical, you still can't be wearing fashion from you know, five years ago in a way that we don't accept, you know, and it, it's been interesting to sort of watch the and then of course these things get so ingrained that they then become cycles that you are actually maybe even harder to get out of because, you know, you literally cannot find other clothing that sort of pulls you out of these cycles. Like how do we move from this version of capitalism into a new one when we're still trapped in this one? Right. Like it's it's a very tough not to crack.
1: Yeah, right and that's and that's why I wrote this book right because it's it's a tough nut to crack and you have to crack it on a whole bunch of levels sort of simultaneously in a way. So there's the sort of there's the psychological piece that like people like you and I can just choose to not play that game, right? We can choose to sort of create and foster and and value a culture of non-consumerism, right? Of like, I'm going to buy the best quality jeans I can that are going to last me many, many years. I'm not going to dry them in the dryer so they're going to last longer. I'm not going to feel like a loser socially because I'm wearing jeans that aren't so stylish, right? There's all that side of things. But then there's the, the sort of the rules and regulations part of it. And so I do think laws like, you know, requiring manufacturers to take their stuff back requiring labeling that says how long a thing will last, laws that require a right to repair, all those kinds of things matter. And then I think the biggest piece about sort of on the policy level to get to an economy that functions is fighting against inequality. And that's kind of as I did a lot of, I didn't start this book knowing that, but by the end, it was really clear to me that taxing the rich is really, really crucial. It's crucial because it, it actually flattens the hierarchy. So, you know, there's, there's, there's if you think about like politicians who, who, who push for getting rid of inequality, there's people like Elizabeth Warren who will say, the reason we need to get rid of inequality is because we need to tax the rich in order to have money for public goods. And I think that's a very, very important and very good point, right? You know, that that, that money goes for public transportation, parks, libraries, schools, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. And then Bernie Sanders takes that one step further that says, the other reason you tax inequality is because billionaires have too much power in our society. And we need to actually eliminate the billionaire class because the billionaire class is what's driving us. And especially the fossil fuel billionaire class is what's just driving us toward the ecological cliff. And then there's a third reason you get rid of inequality is is because of the way that it's socially destructive. So, that everybody feels like they need a bigger house and a newer kitchen because they want to keep up with those people who they're looking above at. And and in societies with lo- lower levels of inequality, what you find is lower levels of status anxiety. And that's really real.
0: Yeah, that's something that when I was doing some other work, or actually I wrote a piece about how to build a joyful Toronto because Toronto has felt relatively not joyful. We've been in a relative austerity government for the last... 13 years and it's been we just recently got a new mayor who maybe will not make that happen as much which is exciting but it really has led to a point where it's hard to feel like you can live in a joyful city because you know you're walking past so many systems breaking down but one of the things that came to the fore in that research was the fact that societies that are more equal have everyone being happier it's not yeah. It's not just that it's the, you know, it's not that it's happier because it raises the, you know, the bottom and the middle to the happier status. It's that everyone across the board, including the wealthy, are happier yeah. in equal societies. And that to me is something that we just don't do a very good job of making people understand, right? Like the, that's yeah. a public education piece that I, we could really correct that nut. That'd be
1: great. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you that it turns out that the the wealthiest people actually, obviously, obviously have way more money than they can need. It's I mean, I don't particularly care about them as human beings, but it turns out it's actually better for them to shift the game.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so the pushback will always be that in the attempts to make a more equal society and to pull more money out of the private industry and bring it back more into the public, that that will inherently also hurt the people who we are trying to help, right? Like that somehow in doing this, it will increase the cost of goods and services. And so your dollar will go less far, you know, and so, you know, you won't be able to make ends meet in the same ways that you can, right? Like that's sort of the constant sort of push for this idea that unfettered capitalism is a good idea is because it reduces the cost of goods and services so that the people who are, you know, who are more economically disadvantaged, can afford stuff. But obviously, that's not working right now. There's billions of people right now who can't afford stuff already. So kind of brings the question. But it is, I think, the central argument that is made.
1: How would you respond to that? Yeah. And I just think like a 100 years of empirical experience show that to be false, right? I mean, it's just simply not true. If you look at societies. So again, the sort of northern European societies, I think, are really good examples of this. High levels of taxation that's that then go to support public goods. Those societies are some of the happiest societies in this world. So it's just, it's just empirically false, right? And so it's 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 sometimes it's frustrating to have this argument because it's just simply empirically false. And and you know, the the kinds of You know, and I think, you know, there is the the boogeyman of authoritarian state socialism is serious, right? It's like, it is true that the alternative to sort of rapacious, uh, environmentally destructive, fossil fuel funded capitalism should not be authoritarian socialism, right? It should not be a state that kind of crushes innovation and doesn't care about people's needs and, and people's happiness, but kind of b- between those two extremes, there are all kinds of models that work of social democratic societies where, where that are democratic. And so people's needs matter, people's joy matters, and investment in public goods matters. And so I just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how strongly or how much more to say that. It's just simply not the case that, that when you tax the rich, society falls apart. It's just not true right yeah exactly and so I want to get to some
0: solutions and some some conversations around you know degrowth and these other pieces that I think we'll get to But before we do we'll go to one more music break so enjoy this music and I'll be right back And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, anywhere podcasts can be found, including greenmajority.ca and the Harbinger Media Network. If you are just joining us, we are here with Cynthia Kaufman, who is the author of Consumerism, Sustainability, and Happiness, How to Build a World Where Everyone Has Enough, we are part three of this discussion, and my name is Steven Hostetter. And we are, we have talked already about enough and how sort of capitalism can drive home the fact that we don't have enough, and is creating this sort of cycle hamster wheel of trying to always have enough. But what I'd like to end with is just sort of where you sort of in the book end up and going to is. So, what other systems are available? How can we start looking at other systems where we could accept that we have enough and ensure that everyone has
1: enough? So, I think when I think about what people need to do to get there, it's about building democratic politics and it's about building kind of vibrant communities where people feel like they have enough. And so, I think the most important policy to push for in societies which are very inegalitarian is simply pushing for equality by all kinds of taxation that tax the wealthy that that's that's in and, and that means you know in, in in the United States that means making sure we don't go down the fascist rat hole that we might go down you know it, it coming up soon and 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 sort of pres- preserving democratic forms of government that ins- that insist on on taxing the wealthy in order to provide the strong public goods that that to me is the most important thing, but then also on a softer level, kind of building cultural forms where you where where people find forms of joy outside of the world of commodification. Let's just say it that way.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so the one of the big questions around whenever we get to these discussions, I've had a f- bunch of different economists and stuff on the show, is. Trying to reduce the material throughput of our economy, right? Without without removing the materials that people need to live, right? Like, yeah. how do we how do we consume less stuff while ensuring everyone else has enough stuff? And part of it, for sure, is you know you can lop off the you know eighty percent of consumption done by the one percent. Probably not super important in terms yeah. of anyone's living standards, and so that is a relatively you know simple first step but the problem yeah. is huge right like as you said even in terms of as we get to a 10 million sort of population that again i we are a very anti malthusian show but there's still a lot of people and yeah. there's and there's and so there's still a lot of need there in terms of food and 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 these things will get harder as climate change ravages our economies right like yeah. and so we do sort of need this shift very quickly and soon to a new way of thinking about our economies. And so yeah. as you were doing research, did you sort of see some people moving that direction
1: and, and what did you sort of get excited by when you, when you did it? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really interested in alternative economic indicators. And so I'm sure you've done shows on that. But the idea that we, don't, we need to stop using growth as a as a goal right and that's that's like i feel like that's environmental economics basic 101 is that the idea of gdp and having sort of more throughput as as something that we should aspire to that that's one of the most important things is to get rid of the idea of economic growth i'm a real fan of the concept of degrowth because i actually think that growth in itself you know what's created to 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 He'll look at boom and bust cycles in the economy that had actually nothing to do with the health of an economy. So I just think it needs to be pushed aside as a wrong metric. But the metrics of, you know, genuine happiness indicators or the, the genuine progress indicator, those kinds of alternative economic indicators where we measure how are we doing by Do we have high levels of infant mortality or not? What's our level of literacy? What's our level of happiness? Are people doing well? So that we measure the economy that way. And once you start to measure your your economy in terms of how well our people are doing with a, a special focus on how we eliminated the most extreme forms of suffering, to me is the most important question. You know, Kate Reworth's donut economics, I think is nice, which is that it's just a basic idea of like, When you say, how are we doing as an economy? You have to say, have we got rid of the worst forms of suffering? And are we staying within the ecological limits of the planet? That's the basic first kind of cut at at an economy. So I think that's really, really important. And I think you can say those things. And then there's the, the sort of basic environmental things about what are the ways to squeeze waste out of the economy? So if you think about again the, the things about planned obsolescence, sort of a lack of recycling, the sort of you know, single-use plastics. We need to we need to work on those those kinds of things. So and I'm a big fan of the idea of solidarity economics. So the idea of in my ideal world, we're all not working very much. And so we have time to do fun stuff. And so then we don't need to kind of consume to to, to have joy in our lives. And so I, I, I think it, it's sort of within those bounds that you end up with kind of a a of a, an economy that works for everybody.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, the one so, thing I recently learned that I've now probably said at least four times on the show, but I can't not keep saying it because it still blows my mind, is that GDP precluded this concept of growth over everything. That we created a metric to count GDP and that metric was then sort of used as the way we decide across nations how they were doing. And then every nation decided to try to maximize that one metric. And it's sort of this example yeah. of there's a there's a there's a fallacy that is about how if you make a metric, people will or a KPI key performance indicator, people will shift all of their focus, try to maximize that, even yeah. even to the detriment of the actual goal which like, you know, right. human happiness, for example. And I think like, I mean, the American, the States right now is a great example, which is that y'all have seen consistent growth over the last 10 years, 10, 15 years. And yet life expectancy has decreased by what? Five, six years? Which you'd think is, should be a really important metric. Like how long you're living as a person should theoretically be key. And yet the economy's booming. Why aren't people happy? Continues to be a question that's being asked. Right.
1: And it's right, and it's not just a logical fallacy. It's like the reason that happens is because how much growth measures how much stuff is bought and sold in an economy. And that's what matters to capitalism. That's what matters to capitalism. It doesn't matter for our well-being. So I think sort of pushing growth out as even what we're talking about is really crucial. And like I said, that's why I know that there are a lot of really good people doing good work who, who think of degrowth as their goal and I'm just like it's just it's not a helpful metric. For me, happiness and well-being are really important positive metrics and then sort of you know pollution and waste are important negative metrics. And if you kind of like look at those as the things that you're measuring, we can step by step get to a better world. And so that's to me, the The goal of a sort of a world cap, past capitalism is the world where where well being and environmental health are the core of what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think one country is currently doing that. Shout out to Bhutan, I believe, right? is one company one country that's decided to have a happiness index being its main focus. And I think its
1: main focus, but there are other countries that that are doing this. And actually, you know, and there are other countries. Like I think France has a and there, there are some states that have it. There are even some states within the United States that actually measure genuine, use the genuine progress indicator. They just don't necessarily use it as the main thing. Right. Fair. So
0: it's we're getting there a little bit. I mean, we had a really interesting conversation about a year ago now, maybe even, with folks from the well-being economy and trying to sort of get, their whole thing is get off GDP. They're sort of like, yeah. you need to find some other metrics to discuss how well we're doing that's not GDP. And that does seem like a very
1: first wedge point to, to begin to pry us open, right? Yeah, exactly. It's an important wedge in all of that. And I think it's always important to to look at, you know, I'm always looking at where these new things are happening, right? And so the idea is that there are there is increasing interest in these alternative economic indicators. And I think that's really exciting. For sure. And so
0: we're about three to five minutes left in the episode and I want to give you a chance to sort of hammer home sort of what would you say you learned from all the research and writing this book that you would want people to know like if you had to like give people a couple minutes of like this is what you should take home and remember and go out into the world with what would it be
1: most important thing I learned in working on this book is it reinforced my belief that there is enough in the world for everybody even as the plant, the population continues to grow and continues to level enough. There is enough food, there are enough resources for everybody to live well. And what's keeping us from living well is the levels of inequality in our society and the lack of investment in public goods. So that if we actually sort of shift our economy to giving people the things that actually make people happy, which is a sense of well-being, a sense of community, time, and all those kinds of th- those, those kinds of goods, it's. Quite within reach to have a world where everyone has enough. Amazing.
0: So I'll squeeze in one more question. So the, a question I always like asking people who have done big research projects like you have in this in this process. Was there anything that you came across that you were like, "Wow, that was so interesting," or I didn't expect that, or surprised you, or sort of like twinged your brain to, re- to like maybe sent you in a wormhole or something like that? Like, was there anything sort of that was just? came out of nowhere that you were like, oh, wow, man, that was
1: something I didn't expect. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the research that shows that there really is a deep correlation between inequality and unhappiness was really stunning to me, how clear that research is, and also how much even in an inegalitarian society, how bad it is even for the wealthy. That was really interesting to me. You know, the other thing too, is that I ran across a book called The Spirit Level that was very helpful to me, that basically, again, did, did a ton of empirical study of how many social problems are caused by inequality. And that was really extraordinary to me, that in societies with high levels of in, inequality, the way I would say it is this, inequality is highly correlated with teen pregnancy, drug use, obesity, mental health problems, almost every other social problem is a symptom of inequality. And so that if you want to solve, for example, like just randomly, like the problem of teen pregnancy, turns out you can teach teenagers about, you know, birth control and give them good counseling and all those kinds of things, which are really important things to do, but you actually solve the problem of teen pregnancy by solving the problem of inequality. That was really extraordinary to me, was was that a whole host of social problems are actually caused by inequality and can be solved by lessening inequality. That was really extraordinary to me. Amazing. It feels simple and yet it's so hard. Right. I know. There's a way that when I talk about this, I, I did a book talk actually, and I felt like it's obvious, right? I mean, everything, I think even though I spent a long time working on this, I think there's a way that these problems and these solutions are somewhat obvious. And then the the hard part is the organizing work we do to actually solve them.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if folks heard this and want to read your book and get connected, how can they? I would say
1: reach out to me through, I have a a WordPress page, CynthiaCoffman.org. I would say go to my webpage and I've got a contact me thing there. I'm always happy to send people copies of the book. And of course they can, yeah, they can find all of my work on that website. Amazing.
0: Well then, thank you so much. Such a joy to have you on again. This has been Cynthia Kaufman, the author of Consumerism, Sustainability and Happiness. Thank you so much for
1: being here and have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks so much. It was really fun.